Hi, guys. Thank you for that warm hello. This is the LIC Reading Series. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series. LIC Reading Series is a monthly event in Long Island City, Queens, in the carriage house of LIC Bar. In our podcast, each week you'll hear recordings from one of our many events over the years. This episode features readings from our May 14, 2019 event, when we celebrated our four-year anniversary. You'll hear readings from Idra Novi, John Ray, and Garnet Cadigan. And you'll probably also hear some sounds in the background from my one-month-old baby. Yes, this is the sleep-deprived edition of LIC Reading Series, as I was one month postpartum while hosting. You may also hear some inside jokes uh, told during the intro to John Ray. I think I mentioned monosodium butamate, which came up in the beginning when we were talking about don't worry about it it's fine just don't worry about it jump in with us listen to the episode check out the readings this time next episode you'll hear the panel discussion we're going to start off with our introductions to Idra Novi all right uh we're going to start with Idra Novi Idra Novi is the author of the novel Those Who Knew, an indie next pick and best book of 2018 with NPR, Esquire, BBC, Kirkus Review, and elsewhere. It's available for sale here from a story bookshop. And her first novel, Ways to Disappear, also available for sale here, received the 2017 Sammy Rohr Prize, the 2016 Brooklyn Eagles Prize, and was a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize for First Fiction. Um, she's also a translator. I should have double-checked the pronunciation of these names before introducing you. I hope I don't do it too badly. Her co-translations with Ahmad Nadalazadeh are forthcoming with Penguin Press in 2020. That there goes my baby. Uh, so uh, I wanted to let you guys know, uh, Those Who Knew got a star review by Kirkus Reviews, and which says, Those Who Knew is a dreamy and jarring and exceedingly topical, and that Novi's writing is singularly vibrant. And in the Washington Post, uh, Ilana Massad wrote that Novi is a skillful wordsmith with descriptions that are poetic yet never overwrought. Those Who Knew is not only an important book about silence and its consequences, but also a sheer pleasure to read. And I can tell you it's also a wonderful book to read if you are parenting children because it propels you through. It's like engaging you. Like, I'm sorry you're crying. I have to keep reading this. But no, I'm a good mother. Don't. But it's like, it's like a... It's it's short jam-packed chapters, which is like I appreciate as as a, as a mother. Like I have time to read two chapters before I nap for twenty minutes. Um, so I, thank you for writing this book. I enjoyed it so much. I can't wait to hear you up here. Let's give a round of applause for Idra. Well, thank you all for coming out on such lovely, lovely evening with this fantastic spring weather. Congratulations on four years of a fantastic series. And thank you for the beautiful intro. And thank you to all of you who make this happen. I think, you know, we don't really need any more authors. The world has enough. <laughs> what we need are readers and people who celebrate literature and who keep the conversation going. I mean, this is the music of literature. It's getting together and reading it and talking about it. So thank you for keeping literature going because we are, um, you know, the three of us, what we're doing is completely sort of not necessary as <laughs> us. <laughs> um, 
saying. I'm just saying, you know, it's like the secret heroes of literature, everyone who keeps the music up and going. So thank you for thank you for doing that with the series. Um, I'm I, I I guess I'm sort of like, you know, a number of months into the book tour. So I'm gonna read something I've never never read because it keeps it keeps it lively. Yeah. <gasps> Queen's anecdote. Oh yes, sorry. Yes, I had it in my head. I was thinking about it the whole way here. So I have two beloved friends who live in Queens. Um, and you will know how beloved they are that the few nights that you get a babysitter, the friends that you go and see on your babysitter nights, Joseph and David, you are those people <laughs> for my for my rare, rare <laughs> nights out. Um, and David is a fantastic cook, and Joseph and I are don't cook, but um <laughs> And I just, whenever I think of Queens, I always think, oh, I can't wait to go to Queens and see my beloved friends who live there. So I think that's um, my Queens anecdote. Um, And also that time we went to the Noguchi Museum and my children got kicked out for being too loud. But I I was like, should I bring that up? Or just, yes, they were like, perhaps you should take them to the outside garden. (laughs) Queens. Also, the best Chilean empanadas are here as well. Um, I could go on. So much love for Queens, but my homage to beloved friends. Okay, so Those Who Knew is set on an unnamed island. Um, It's an invented island. It's sort of an amalgam of a number of countries where the U.S. intervened. And it's a parable about power imbalances and how they played out and how those power imbalances push certain people into silence and um, allow one person to sort of rule the narrative over another. So um, I'm going to read... One section from the, uh, the character Lena, who um, had um, is she. It's a section you'll just hear something that happened. Um, somebody she dated in college, who was a powerful person in college, and then now became a very successful senator. But um, is sort of of the Eric Schneiderman variety, you know, very polished in public and depraved in private. Um, I started this five years ago. It was kind of amazing where I thought I was coming up with these people who were sort of only would happen in fiction, and then everybody in reality was like. <laughs> I just made everybody look so bland that I had come up with. Um, Lena hailed one of the island's shared cabs to get up to the hill to the bookstore faster. She's visiting her friend who has a used bookstore. A pair of beak-nosed elderly women in the back seat who look like sisters slid over to make room for her. It's like a shared cab, so it's like via, kind of. As Lena crammed in next to them, the sisters smiled at her as if she were a child. She wondered what expression would come over their faces if she told them she was wearing the sweater of the student who'd been murdered last week by the Port District's much-celebrated young senator. But what would come of saying such a thing to a pair of elderly sisters in a shared cab? And so Lena gave the sisters what they were expecting, the docile smile of a teacher who taught first-year pedagogy students in a marginal college, a woman given a name almost as common on the island as the name of the woman who was killed, Maria. When Lena had confessed to Victor the implicit expectation she felt to be as ordinary and predictable as her name, he'd said, what about Helen of Troy? Nothing predictable about starting the Trojan War, right? Victor has suggested she think of herself as Helen's descendant, instigating the end of her island's regime, one flaming piece police car at a time. All it would take, he told her, was a little gasoline and a bottle. They'd been sitting on the plaid couch in Victor's basement at the time. She'd been in her second term at the university, Victor in his third in political science, and revered by everyone in the movement. 
She'd known that his interest in her had been the only reason she'd been included among the students secretly organizing the marches. At the meetings, everyone deferred to Victor. He delivered his ideas with such precision and hypnotic confidence that he left them all mesmerized. When any of them presented an idea, they'd all turn to Victor for validation. If he nodded in agreement, the others began to nod too. Riding now in the cab, Lena couldn't remember if Victor had first kissed her on the sofa then or if it had happened later after she'd made her first Molotov cocktail in the shed behind his house. For hours afterward, she'd felt dizzy from the gas fumes, but also from the audacity of what they were doing. If they didn't die, it was entirely possible they might usher in the country's first legitimate election in over a decade. Come on, soak the rag a little more, Victor had urged her. Get it good and drenched. And this is Victor. Um, It's a little tricky to write Victor, but then once I started, I really enjoyed it. Victor told his fiancée he was headed to his office, which would be true eventually. He just needed some air off the sea first. Since college, he'd like to walk the docks along the port to process things while moving between the cargo ships. It cleared his mind to drift between the giant stacks of containers, the men shouting at each other as they operated the cranes. Today, however, something wasn't right. The first dock was full of people who didn't belong there, women and teenagers doddering old men with binoculars. What the hell's going on? He asked a man who was crouching, about to secure a rope to the dock. Whales, the man answered, a pair of them, mating. Where? Victor looked out at the ocean, which was a dull color today, the clouds round and gray and piled like potatoes. Hard to guess, the man said. They might be going at it down there right now. All anyone's seen is their backs, but people keep showing up. The kiosk's been out of cigarettes for days. He turned his face toward Victor with this last piece of information, and Victor noticed the man's right eye wasn't tracking in sync with the left one. Victor backed away. He wasn't up to dealing with any peculiar faces right now, no fucking whales. He gave the man the briefest of nods and continued down the dock, moving past a cluster of teenage boys eating chocolate bars and laughing. But seriously, one of the boys says, how big do you think a whale's boner is? And then the boys laughed harder, and Victor felt a rush of revulsion at their particular humor and pimpled faces. And revulsion, too, at the thought of his own face, so distant now from a boy's face. He'd felt painfully old and lonely when his younger brother began questioning him over lunch on Sunday. It had been excruciating to stiffen and deny Freddy an answer, to will a growing distance from his only brother. But Freddy had been relentless. You must know something, Freddy had insisted. You slept with her. Was she a drunk? Was she reckless? How did she end up in front of that bus? Thank you. One more time for Idra Novi. I can see that Victor would be actually be really fun to write after a while. It was great. And also I love that uh, your Queen's story was like, the best friends are in Queens. <laughs> it's true. The best chefs. Actually, the best food is in Queens. Straight up. Anyway. So this is the magic silver box. And what happens is I'm going to have it out here next to Astoria Bookshop during the intermission with some paper and some pens. And if you write a question on the paper and put it in the box and I ask that question during the panel discussion, you're going to get an amazing prize. But keep in mind that your question could be asked to any one of our readers, so it can't be specific to one person. All right. We're going to move on to our second reader right fast. John Ray, who we're going to give it up for John Ray because two of our readers tonight are recovering from food poisoning as we speak. Eater's not one of them. (laughs) 
John Ray is the author of the critically acclaimed novels The Lost Time Accidents, Low Boy, The Right Hand Asleep, Cannon's Tongue, and most recently, Godsend. He was named one of Grant's best of young American novelists in 2007. He's the recipient of a Whiting Writers Award and a Guggenheim Fellowship. Basically a slacker. He lives in Brooklyn and Mexico City, from which he just landed today. Mexico City to uh, Queens, straight to Queens. Charter jet, right to Queens. Um, James Wood writes in The New Yorker that Godsend discovers within itself a profound understanding of the demands of religious practice, of religious submission especially, which has eluded almost every serious contemporary American novelist since 9-11. It is not only Ray's heroine, but also his novel that comes of age, steadily deepening and astounding as it develops. Um, you're a serious contemporary American novelist. Do you, do you feel it? Yeah. No, you, I mean... Monosodium butamate. I will tell you, fun fact. Also, riveting, loved your book. Um, just in the spirit of sharing too much information. I read this book late at night over the uh, a couple weeks, about a month ago, right after birth, while pumping milk in the middle of the night. Breast pump, John's book. And I think that's amazing because the main character binds her breasts. And here I was doing the opposite or maybe the same thing. Because either way, it feels kind of torturous to boobs. So on that note, let me bring up a serious American novelist in the context of torturing boobs. Let's give it up for John Ray. Wow, there's, there's literally nothing I can say to that that wouldn't be weird. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm a little, I think Garnet and I are both a little under the weather, so I'm going to keep on my coat. Um, and I might do this occasionally, but it's not because I'm feeling self-conscious up here or anything. Uh, so, um, Queen's anecdote first. I lived in Queens um, almost 20, actually 20 years ago for about half a year. Um, and does it, I mean, it doesn't count as Queens bashing to say that the neighborhood has changed a lot, does it? And that it was a little sketchier 20 years ago. That's okay, I can say that, right? Because it was pretty, yeah. I mean, as I recall, I mean, six months doesn't qualify me as an expert or anything, but uh, I mean, I never had any bad experiences, but I was living with, I had this roommate who was a very strange person. Um, Charles Dawson, I think he was from Arkansas, um, friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. He was terrified, not just of Queens, but of New York City in general. Um, and uh, he was never a friend of mine. He was actually very strange. I was actually very relieved when I was able to move out. But he, first thing he told me when I moved in was, yeah, you know, man, you walk around here late at night and, you know, crazy shit can happen. I mean, crazy shit has happened. Crazy shit's happened to people that I, I know really well. And what you do is, here's what I do. I just take my shirt off. And I was like, oh. He's like, no, no. You think about it, man. You walk down the middle of the street. You just take your shirt right off, man. Just take a strip right down like naked torso. Everyone thinks you're insane. No one messes with you then. That was the first thing he said to me. Um, and a few months after I had been living with him, he came in really kind of rattled one night 
and uh, I'm trying to remember this correctly. He came and really rattled in one night, and he, uh, he was, I was, he was like, I was like, what's happened? What happened to you, man? And he said, Oh, it was really intense. It was really intense. It was really intense. And I said, Well, what, did you get jumped? Did you get mugged? What happened? He's like, Well, you know, you know what I told you you do when you sort of, you know, when you're a little freaked out late at night here. And I was like, oh, yeah. He's like, okay. So I was walking down the street, and these dudes were coming at me, man. They were coming at me, like, from the far corner. And so first thing I did was I just took my shirt off, you know? Like, I stripped down just to my pants. And then they kept coming at me. They kept coming at me. So I started doing this thing. I would, like, point at my own eyes, and I would point at their eyes, man. I would point at my eyes and at their eyes. And, like, you know, it was just a, you know, I was like, I'm coming for you, man. I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. He told me this whole anecdote, and at the end, I said, "Well, what happened? You know, did you have to fight these guys? Did did they? What happened?" He's like, "Oh, it's now it's nothing, man. Uh, they were Danish tourists." <laughs> <laughs> um, and I moved out short, shortly thereafter. Okay, so I don't know if that counts as a Queens anecdote, but it did happen here in 1990, whatever eight. So, uh, I'm going to read uh, a briefly 10 minutes, correct? Up to. Up to. Oh, my God. So, sh short is better, is what you're saying. All right. Uh, I'm going to read up till 10 minutes uh, from my novel Godsend. And basically, it's about, it's said in the year 2000, 2001. And it's about a young teenager from Northern California, uh, a woman who um, grew up in a house in which Islam was studied in kind of in an academic way, but who became um, more directly and emotionally attached to Islam and eventually converted to Islam and essentially leaves home Santa Rosa, California under false pretenses uh, with a friend of hers who's of Pakistani origin, intending to study the Quran in a madrasa in Pakistan. In order to do that, she represents herself as a young boy. Her name is Aiden. Uh, she calls herself Suleiman when she gets to Pakistan. And she and her friend study in a madrasa. She manages, um, she's a fairly androgynous looking young lady. She manages to convince people for a while that she's a young boy who's passionately interested in Islam. She's a fascination to the people there, of course, because she's an American and various other reasons. She's studying Islam in a very remote part of Pakistan, near the border to Afghanistan, the sort of so-called tribal regions where for years we thought uh, Osama bin Laden was hiding. Um, eventually, uh, through a sort of set of strange circumstances, she finds herself on the other side of the border in Afghanistan. This is the year 2000 when the Taliban are engaged in a very intense war with uh, a bunch of warlords in the north of the country who we then would call the Northern Alliance and became our good buddies uh, after 9-11. So this is right before 9-11. That's all. Okay, here we go. Uh, and her name is Aiden. At the frontier to Panjshir, a company of Kabuli Taliban met Aiden's company by chance likewise headed to Kunduz by the northern trail. They were a far larger body of soldiers, self-disciplined and silent, their clothes and guns immaculate and black. They seemed warriors in some different cause entirely. The other men regarded them with awe. The Kabuli captain wore a camel hair great coat in spite of the heat, 
and chewed on a blade of grass as he conferred with Zr. The two were in conference for nigh on an hour, and it seemed to Aiden as she watched them that some momentous event must have occurred. Some cataclysm. She decided that Kunduz had been lost, or that the northern line had broken, or that the great emir in Kandahar was dead. At last the two men stood and embraced, and Ziar gave orders for a meal to be prepared. The captain had returned to his men and was directing the assembly of a field radio. The others were unrolling their prayer rugs, but Aiden stayed as she was and observed him. With his straggling beard and his preposterous coat, he looked less like the bearer of solemn tidings than a beggar costumed in a rich man's clothes. But his men, with their jet-colored vestments and their new and gleaming ordnance, looked like martyrs on their way to paradise. They aren't praying, someone behind Aiden whispered. Why aren't they praying? They must have prayed before we got here, said another. Have you been sleepwalking, brother? We got here at the same time. He's a warlord, said another. They're not Taliban at all. This is kind of like a Taliban meeting outside. I mean, someone's going to fire a Kalashnikov at the sky in a second. Of course they're Taliban. Look at their clothes. Look at their weapons. If those are Taliban, said the first man, what the hell are we? This is suspenseful. Everyone laughed but Zr. He had yet to say a word. I know what that machine is, Abu Sahel said proudly. It's a kind of radio. A field transmitter, Zr said, for talking to Kabul. He's using it now, said the second man. Do you hear? I thought music was forbidden, the man who'd made the joke said sullenly. I don't know what you did, ma'am, but that was really... Oh, yeah? <laughs> Thank you. Um, oh, okay, I'm trying to get serious. It's important, it's important stuff. Um, it's not that kind of radio, you donkey. It's for talking to one person. That's right, the Captain Z.R. said. It's for receiving orders, brothers, and for getting news. Something in his manner hushed the men. The wind carried the sound of the radio to them in soft, unintelligible rushes. Zr ate his flatbread and sipped at his tea, nodding to himself as if he were alone. When she couldn't stand it any longer, Aidan asked what the captain had told him. It's America. America, she said. He looked toward her now. A strike, he said. An attack in the capital and in another city. Aiden slumped slightly forward. What kind of a strike? A plane, they say. Two planes. He shook his head. Some sort of conflagration. No one spoke for a time. Aiden felt them all watching. The radio's chatter paled and brightened in the wind. What does this matter to us? Came a voice from behind her. Aiden turned and saw the man who'd spoken first. The confusion in his eyes made her want to embrace him. 
It wasn't Pashtuns that did it. I'm sure of that much. How can you be sure? She said. Because of this, he answered, holding up his rifle. This old blunderbuss could never shoot that far. A few brothers laughed. Ziar gave no reaction. Our guns don't shoot that far, he said at last. But their guns do. A man with burn marks along his jawline raised his right hand like a student in a classroom. There was a nation which passed away, he recited. They have earned their reward, and you have earned yours. You will not be held responsible for what they did. Well and truly spoken, said another. What happens in America is no concern of ours. No nation is exempted from God's judgment, my brothers, and surely that one least of all. What do you think, brother? The man who'd spoken first asked Aiden. She shook her head stiffly. She asked Zr who had carried out the strike. I can't say, little brother. Not us, said the man who'd made the joke about the rifle. It was no Pashtun brothers, no Afghan at all. Why can't you say, brother Zr? said Aiden. Because you don't know? Or is there some other reason? The others turned as one to look at her. She ignored them all and waited for his answer. The radio fell sharply into focus. A young man's voice, speaking Arabic with an unfamiliar accent. When no answer came, she stepped out of the circle and walked through the grass to where the captain sat hunched over his crackling apparatus like an alchemist transmuting dung into gold. Two boys sprang up to block her approach, their hands already at the knives in their belts, but the captain waved her forward. He'd taken off his coat and rolled up his sleeves, and his fingertips and palms were dark with grease. She waited for him to address her. The young man on the radio was reporting on the weather in Kunduz. Ketchare, Sahib, Aiden said in her impatience. The boys shook their heads at her lack of decorum. The captain set his tools aside. The American, he said in English. The American pays us a visit. All right, that's, that was less than 10, right? But more than three. Give it up again for John Ray. <laughs> Bringing it through food poisoning and a flight from Mexico City today. Um, not only do both Idra's and John's books have a woman looking at you on the cover, but they both very deftly include 9-11 uh, through the plot of the book. And I think you should get both of the books and you can compare how they do it. Because it's a real skill. It's like, you know, that's a, it's a big thing to, you do it, both do it very well. Um, let's give it up one more time for Idra and John. We're not going to have any further ado. We're just going to bring Garnet up here, um, who is also a vampire who never sleeps. No? Never sleeps. 
And um, I can't wait to hear what you just wrote on Amtrak. Let's give it up for Garnett. I have a friend that works at the Hotel Across from Penn Station, and I emailed him to print this out, and the printer wasn't working, which made me think that one of the mottos is Queens, because Manhattan always fails you. <laughs> so, I'm not wearing a coat because of the poisoning. As he said, as the great poet once said, man's not hot, never hot. Can't tell that nobody here listens to British hip hop. <laughs> Google it, you'll understand. No, a comedian who had had a whole rap parody of rap songs, the whole thing is about wearing coats in, in, in the heat and saying, man's not hot. And everybody, the song became a number one hit because people assume that it was really a hip-hop song, but it's a parody of all these hip-hop songs. So, you know, he took that parody to the bank. So, but I need to give a Queen story, shouldn't I? Um, I have so many Queen stories. I love this bar to death. But I'll, I'll give one where I was, I sometimes babysit my friends' kids, and people love when I babysit because my babysitting services are free. So I always like, oh, come. And then I never sleep, so I said, people, go, head out, have fun. Though in Manhattan, when I babysit my friends in Manhattan, I said, oh, I'm here to babysit the kids. They head off, I'm like, you guys gonna have sex when I'm here babysitting the kids? And they're like, no, dude, we have three kids. We're tired, we're going to sleep. <laughs> Do whatever you want with the kids. <laughs> so I was babysitting some friends of mine who live right by Central Park. And, you know, like every kid underneath seven years old, you know, who's a boy, He's obsessed with Thomas the Train. And there was something going on in the park, just, you know, um, by Queen's Museum with the Thomas the Train exhibit and the like. And so I said to his mom, I said, you know, he's talking about Thomas the Train and we just watch Men in Black. Can I just take him to like, let's go to the park and look at Men in Black? And she goes, yeah, of course, have fun. And she calls about that hour later. So where are you? I said, I'm at the park with Zach. And she said, well, you know, can you be home like in 15 so then i'm like it's going to take us at least an hour to get back she said what do you mean i said i'm taking him to have fun i mean it couldn't be central park and i'm in queens <laughs> and she said garnet bring back my kid <laughs> and, uh, and so i said well can we suffer food first and she said not only is it awful that you brought the kid that far but the worst place to take my kid is queens and i said why she said he's allergic to everything and in queens all the great food that he wants to be eating and eventually get to eat 40 years from now is right there in front of him she said it's torture for anybody who have allergies so it was her way of giving a compliment to the borough and singing its praises i did take the garnet time and it came back about two hours later because queens also has the muppet the jim henson exhibit and so so i figured i was already in enough trouble she was going to chew me out for going down the road. I said, I just headed on the road to the park and I ended up in Queens, right in Central Park. So I figured, you know, let him throw a tantrum and then you can argue with him. So it's like, I'm trying to leave, but the man of twins, you know, he's addicted to them. You know, the man of twins is like, man of man, 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 man
Yes. And so the Jim Henson Museum saved me that day, as it has saved me many a times. <laughs> so that's my Queen story. Yes. <laughs> so, though she did call me four days later, and she's good. Because of you, the entire family can't get this damn earworm out of her head. He's running all around the entire house singing Mana Mana songs. I was proud of him. Also, in a key, if you're having a Jamaican babysit your kids, please explain the language issues with kids. Because the following week I was babysitting and I came in and I got a phone call after I'd left. And she goes, what the hell were you watching in front of my kids? I said, what do you mean? And she said, the kids said that, you know, they came and you said they couldn't watch a TV because you're watching an adult movie. I'm like, yeah. And she goes, you can't be watching porn around my kids. I said, I wasn't watching porn. And she goes, Garnet, then it's not adult movie. It's grown-up movie. <laughs> There's a difference. So I was like, okay. No to sell. <laughs> So I've sort of gotten a reputation for writing stories about my family and they're of the genre. Well, most stories about the families of the genre, you know, can't live with them, can't live without them. Whereas my stories generally fall within the category, can't live with them, can't live with them. <laughs> and so I'm, this is a little bit of that strain and I'm hoping to break from it a little bit. It's called, Have You Seen My Mother? At least that's what it's called now. <laughs> For most of my life, my mother had no story outside of my story of her. My schoolmates loved her, found her approachable, warm, funny. I protested that they were wrong. If they knew her, truly knew her, they'd run in the opposite direction. I was consumed by anger. Her anger towards me, mine towards her. Apart from anger, there was no other way we regarded each other. There was anger, and there was silence. I tried not to speak to her, not to speak about her. But my parents couldn't stop raving about her. Your mother lets you call her by her first name? Your mother bought you an Atari? Your mother's all in your dancehall records? Your mother is so cool. And I couldn't bear to present the evidence that proved otherwise. But my neighbors, well, they weren't among the tribe of true believers. To them, my mother was nothing more than a tyrant. They'd seen all they needed to see. Worse, they'd seen too much. Understand, when my mother lost her temper, which was often, she didn't just bear her emotions. Sometimes, she bared her butt. <laughs> she would scream obscenities at you one moment, only to moon you the next. <laughs> and it was impossible to tell who was more horrified. The strangers turned on her mother, craned over and shouting one last insult from between her legs. Or me, wanting to scramble away, but knowing that that would only inflame her. This display, at once ungenerous and too generous, <laughs> made the otherwise exuberant, sociable, chatterbox me a quiet, withdrawn kid in the neighborhood. My rationale was simple. 
you saw my mother's ass, you didn't see my face. <laughs> so, constricted at home, avoiding my mother, and constricted in my neighborhood, avoiding my mother's neighbors, I stayed away, estranged by shame and anger. But was she a hypocrite? Did those close to her, people singed by the proximity of her anger, see a different side, the true her, while those distant, far from family and neighbors, were presented a palatable persona? No. Much as I would like to say no, much as I would like to say it, much as I you know, would have been reluctant to admit it, my mother didn't have two faces. Unlike me, terrified that someone, somewhere, somehow might not like me, she did not give a shit what anyone thought of her. After all, as proof, we were once in a cab and she struggled to moon the drive of a neighboring car <laughs> that had earlier cut us off. She was consistent in this. What you see is what is there. I don't know, perhaps she learned not to care about the opinions of others, being a pregnant 17-year-old girl, browbeaten by a fundamentalist grandmother, and of course, those also disapproving neighbors. But that was her, you know, always her, always consistent, you know, what she's. And mind you, I came to this late, I should go off script a little bit, I have it written here, but as a kid, I couldn't see the contradictions and not recognize them as anything except hypocrisy. To give an example of my mother functioned. The Jehovah's Witness would come and they would knock on the doors of everyone in the neighborhood as their you know, want. But the general dude at seven o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, which is in Jamaica, my mom warned. I had a warning with a bunch of curse words. They wouldn't stop. So true to form, my mom followed one of them home <laughs> and came back the following morning at two o'clock. I went boom, boom, boom. Someone said, hello. Now you know how it feels. <laughs> so eventually, you know, all the Jehovah's Witnesses would pass on our street, and we were the black zone. It was the one house they never knocked at. <laughs> Mind you, at the same time, my mom always walked when she was out alone with two or three copies of a wake. So when guys came up to her and began hitting on her, she would say, Have you met Jehovah? Perfect anti-harassment technique. A technique I still use to this day. So on my way here, on the Amtrak, knowing it would have been packed, I should pull it back and take that. You know, you walk with it in a wake and say, you want to see to yourself? Megabus, Bolt Bus, Greyhound, Amtrak. Take it awake and smile. So much as I dislike my mom's anger, somehow some of the techniques you know, follow through with me. Anyway, how, how far am I with time? Almost there. Well, let me skip down. So, anyway, so I skipped down because I want to do a quote from something else. So, so this is me, the cheat, the ending. So my mother has taken off late to ending our conversation with a phrase that for the four plus decades I've known her, I've never heard her utter. I love you. The newness, the strangest, the unrelatability of it all leaves me fumbling for a proper response. Thanks? I mutter and try to rush off the phone. After holding each other in anger for so long, it was what joined us, what kept us at bay, 
This new world where we talk to each other and laugh about long-standing anger is one I hardly know to navigate. The anger is still there. It hasn't gone between us, but now smothered by laughter. And, at least on my part, shame. I asked my mom permission to write about her mooning. She says yes. She laughs. Not in a laugh. Some of us laugh from the throat. They're more enthusiastic from the gut. But my mom, she laughs from a deeper place. Maybe the heel. It reverberates and says, Don't wait for my shame. It's not coming. Give it up again for Garnett, who just wrote that on the train. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens. Queens.